The following is an encore presentation of Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Vicki returns to broadcast live in studio starting in November. Enjoy today's program. Welcome to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Talk radio to inspire, inform, and stimulate. Bringing you enlightened discussions with authors, creatives, innovative business and health professionals, and ordinary people living extraordinary lives, sharing their expertise and life stories, making a difference one word at a time. Now, here's your host, Vicki St. Clair. Welcome, everybody. Welcome, welcome. Well, today we are joined by two of my favorite authors. Uh, coming up uh, in the second half of today's show, we'll be joined again by Seattle native Glenn Eric Hamilton. His stories always begin and always end in Seattle. Uh, for those of you who remember, he was raised aboard a sailboat and he grew up around the marinas here. And in this new book, he, we also travel down to Oregon. His new book is called Mercy River. But first, I'm very pleased to welcome to the show someone we've never spoken to before, and that is Greg Isles. And I was just telling him I've seen his books many times and thought how intriguing they look, and I finally got to uh, dive into one. So um, he's joining us today with his new book called Cemetery Road, and I just want to tell you a little bit of his background since uh, he's not joined us before. He spent most of his life in Mississippi, his first novel, Spandau Phoenix was the first of 16 New York Times bestsellers. He became a number one New York Times bestseller with his Natchez Burning trilogy. And uh, his novels have been made into films, published in more than 35 countries. And he's also, interesting fact here, a member of the Lit Rock Group, the Rock Bottom Remainders. Let me just tell you a little bit about the book here. Um, The Washington Post described Mississippi Blood, which is one of the trilogy, as a superb entertainment that's a work of power, distinction, and high seriousness. And this book is a standalone book. Um, Greg's known for not writing in the same genre. He writes many different genres. I've heard him say along the way, and we'll ask him about this when we can get him back on the phone, but I've heard him say that he uh, likes so many different things in life, and I'm a bit like this myself. It's hard for him to pin down to one subject, to one genre. And so he has, you know, an interest in a certain thing and then he thinks, okay, this is going to make a good novel and heads off in that direction. Um, you might wonder why that's such a big deal and it, because it is a big deal in the publishing world. Publishers and even readers like to lock you down to one genre. And so if you start out as, say, a mystery writer, people expect you to keep writing mysteries and if you veer from that some readers will get upset with you so um greg's a master at this anyway and he's managed to transcend all of that and uh do we have him back on the phone now eric yes i got the thumbs up here greg welcome back that was lousy timing that was right when we went live that was great I know, we were chatting just fine before we went live. So um, I, I was just giving listeners a little bit of background on um, Cemetery Road being a, a standalone novel here. So, um, but I, you know, since it's the first time joining our show, I, I know you're not new to many listeners out there who've read your books, but let's just uh, share a little bit of your background because you, you spent a little time in Germany as a kid. 
you said you grew up in a leave it to beaver kind of environment. Your dad was a doctor and it was kind of expected you'd follow suit, right? Yeah, I grew up in a sort of leave it to leave it to beaver background with the Ku Klux Klan added in, maybe. Uh, oh, <laughs> not, not, not quite leave it to beaver. Uh, that's not something to laugh about. But yeah, no, you know, it's I, not. I, it's not. I had a pretty conventional upbringing, and but um, everything about it, though, also certainly tended toward I think pushing me to be a writer in the end. Because <laughs> even though my dad was a Southern physician, he just revered books above all things. He exposed me to a lot, and having having um, his experience in Germany, both him and my mom, I think they were very aware of the Holocaust and things like that. And so I, I had a pretty unconventional Southern upbringing. I think. Right. I've heard you say that people really misunderstand Mississippi. Um, you seem to have a great love of it. Um, when I've heard you speaking and and talking about it, you seem to have a great love of Mississippi. And uh, it seems that maybe people have a misconception of it. Would you say that's true? I think a lot of Southerners have sort of a love-hate relationship. You know, I'm often asked why I live here, if I can afford to live anywhere I want. And I often quote Morgan Freeman, the actor who's from here. And Morgan was once asked why he lived in Mississippi, because he could obviously afford to live anywhere he wants. And Morgan said, I live in Mississippi because I can afford to live anywhere I want. Uh, There you go. Um, so but here's the misconception, you know, for since the 1960s and long before, Mississippi has really been the sort of whipping boy for the nation on, on race and the issue of racism, because it's always been easy to point to the deep south and say, isn't that racism terrible down there? Look how terrible that racism is, as if it doesn't exist in the north, doesn't right. exist anywhere else. When if the last three years in politics have shown us anything, that racism and xenophobia and those sins for which the South are excoriated have existed in the white body politic all over America. They've just been covert. Um, right. So, um, and you didn't start out as an author. You, you were kind of expected that, to be a doctor, but you ended up uh, being a musician. And, and you were a working musician, but at some point, raising a family, you decided, hey, this isn't enough, and, and decided to give yourself a year to, to write a book, Bust or Break, right? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, being a musician is a lot more fun than being an author. <laughs> being a musician, you're traveling around, seeing, meeting thousands of people, and you're, you're on stage, and there's sort of this infinite oxytocin loop going on all the time. And When you write books, you know, you're sitting in a room by yourself, day after day, a year, two years, no feedback, no anything. It's a real adjustment, but, you know, when I was 29 and a traveling musician and working 50 weeks a year, I sort of slowly came to the realization that I wasn't going to be Sting or John Lennon, you know, and I didn't want to get a real job, you know. It sounds like a joke, but it's true. So I turned to the thing that I had just always been able to do. It wasn't that I wanted to be a writer, but teachers and everyone had always told me that I had this gift, and I said, okay, Mm. die. And that, uh, unlike many, you know, many people struggle to get a hit, but your first book was a, a hit, right? Yeah, I mean, I did that in a calculated way. I, I admit that so beginning writers understand, you know. I They say write what you know. Well, I broke that rule in the beginning because, you know, in music I had tried this sort of noble way, and I knew that at 29 I needed a career. And so I wrote the type of book that at the time was a, a bestseller, a high percentage chance, you know, and because of my German background and the knowledge my dad had and stuff, I was able to 
to do a book like that. Now, I wrote two in a row, and those were bestsellers, and I knew if I wrote one more, Vicky, that I would just be forever pigeonholed. You know, I'd be the next Jack Higgins or the next Frederick Forsyth mm-hmm. or Ken Follett, and I didn't want to do that. And so I turned to the South very sharply on that third book and with a little resistance, and thank God it worked out. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you are known as somebody who's jumped genres, and I, I was explaining a little bit uh, to this while we were trying to c- reconnect with you, but publishers really don't like it when uh, authors jump genres, right? <laughs> because they Well, yeah, they consider that, on, on, there's a term for it, a penalty book, you know? Writers, you know, publishing is on, publishers are large multinational corporations, or they're divisions of large multinationals, and it's about earning money. So when, you know, somebody in this business happens to write something that makes money, obviously most of the uh, pressure that there is is toward simply repeating the existing success. They say, well, that's what your fans want, obviously, that's what your readers want, let's give them what they want. And so what we arrive at is what we all see when you walk into Barnes & Noble or anywhere on that front list. It's sort of a Hollywood mentality of simply rewriting the last book over and over and over again. And it's sad because so many of of us have favorite authors that for three or four books, the first three or four books are really good and rewarding. And then suddenly you're going on number seven. You're like, really? Mm-hmm. You know, this again? This? Yeah. Right, right. Uh, but we're guilty because we do like what's familiar, you know? So it's a, it's a hard thing to break. And I've been lucky enough to be able to do it. And, and I'll be frank, the only way you get to do it is to sell a lot of books doing it. I mean, Michael Crichton was able to do it. Ken Follett has done it to a degree, but it's, it's a rare thing in this industry. Right. So I want to talk about a big turning point in your life. Um, so let's go to break first so we don't have to interrupt um, that flow sure. of conversation there. My guest is Greg Isles. His new book, great new book, is called Cemetery Broad. And you're listening to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. We'll be right back. Please stay with us. Parkinson's disease affects as many as one million people in the United States. At the Parkinson's Disease Foundation, it's our mission to beat this disease. To learn about the Parkinson's Disease Foundation, or if you want to help support our work, visit our website, pdf.org, or call us at 800-457-6676. In the Northwest, contact the Northwest Parkinson's Foundation at nwpf.org. You took the first step and quit smoking. But even former smokers may still be at risk for lung cancer. That's why SaveByTheScan.org wants you to know about a new low-dose CT scan that can detect lung cancer early. It takes only 60 seconds and could save your life. You took the first step, now take the next. Visit SaveByTheScan.org for a simple quiz to see if you're eligible and talk to your doctor about screening. SaveByTheScan.org is brought to you by the American Lung Association's Lung Force Initiative and the Ad Council. Next week on Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair, award-winning Seattle filmmaker, author, speaker, and activist John DeGraff. An icon in the documentary film industry, John DeGraff has written and produced more than 40 films and authored three books, including the highly acclaimed Affluenza. His latest film, Torn Between Two Worlds, explores a thriving California city striving to be a fully self-sustainable community. Tune in Mondays at noon Pacific time and Fridays at 6 a.m. Catch up on podcasts at conversationslive.net. Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Ordinary people leading extraordinary lives. 
advertise. Learn more at conversationslive.net. Talk radio with a purpose. Alternative Talk 1150. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. And my guest in this segment is Greg Isles. His new book is Cemetery Road. It's the first book I've read of Greg's. He's got a lot of books out, but I've become a huge new fan here. Um, Greg, I want to talk about a huge turning point in your life. Um, I'm sure it didn't define you, but I, I know from hearing you talk uh, previously that it it definitely changed the way you view the world. And that, of course, is the car accident that you had after you'd had this success with your novels. And... Um, you sustained life-threatening injuries as really touch and go for a while. Um, how did that change you? Well, the short version is really this. You know, I was at a high point in my life. My last book had gone number one in paperback. That was the first time I'd had that happen. I was feeling pretty arrogant. I had a very large financial deal. But I was taking a very serious step writing, beginning my trilogy about race in the South, etc. And uh, it was expanding into I knew one book wouldn't hold it. And my publisher and I were sort of debating that. And right around this time, I pulled onto Highway 61 and a car hit my, a truck hit my driver's door going 70. So it ripped my aorta, broke 20-something bones, put me in a coma. So when I came out of that, I was, I just had a very different view of everything. I no longer cared what my publisher thought or what my neighbors thought or anything about what I was doing. And when I tell this story, people think it's, it's an Oprah story, you know. Oh, you followed your bliss. Look how great it turned out. You no, know, this is a Jerry Maguire story, you know. Pretty soon after making that decision, I lost my publisher, parted ways with my agent, and I went into enormous debt instantly over the deal I had been in. But but what it gave me, by, by sending me back to the starting blocks with nothing, it gave me the courage to just say, well, I'm going to let the chips fall where they may. I don't care what happens. I'm going to be brutally honest about the South, about family, about race, about history. And it ended up being the right thing. I mean, that ended up changing my career, and people stopped calling me a thriller writer, basically. I mean, I don't mind the, the term thriller writer, but after that, they started calling me the William Faulkner of the Breaking Bad generation, whatever that means. <laughs> right. I, I've actually seen that. Yeah, yeah. It was a considerable compliment, I would think. Um, so... Losing that fear just really opened you up to uh, to really explore and go deep. Then it's sort of it's sort of like that's not the worst thing that could happen because obviously when you go into a rehab hospital you see infinitely worse injuries. But when you come that close to death, I mean, doctors told me only one percent of the people survived the injury that I had. So when you get that close to mortality, you you I don't know if you lose your fear, but you realize in a visceral way, how ephemeral it all is. Now, you know, I play in a band, as you mentioned, with Stephen King and some other writers. And, of course, Steve went through a very similar injury, yes. even worse in some ways. And uh, we've talked about that a lot, you know, how it just, you know, we can go through life telling ourselves life is short and all the other little platitudes, but you don't really understand that until you face your own death. And when you do, it's liberating in a way. Yeah. Right. And so that's when you wrote the, the trilogy uh, of Natchez, right? Right. And it, it was really, to, you know, I mean, it's touch and go because each volume is about 800 pages. It's a massive thing. It, it's a commercial pitch. It's like suicide, right? Okay, here's the book. It's <laughs> right. 800 pages long. It has no ending. 
and it's about racism and brutality in the South. How can it miss, right? <laughs> right. I mean, but, but in the end, it proved to be the right thing. You know, when I started writing it, uh, Obama had just been elected, and people were talking about post-racial America. Can you believe that? I don't think there's a person alive now who would argue we're living in a post-racial society in this country. Mm. But at the time, that's what they said. But as it happened, it, the trilogy turned out to be the right book for the right time. Mm. Um, one of the things I found interesting when I was researching your background, you said that um, you spend, you know, right. Well, first of all, let's just clarify this. These are huge books, as you just said. You're, they're equivalent of two or three regular size novels, right? Yeah. But you said you spend most of your time actually just thinking and then it kind of floods out of you, which I could relate to because I, I'm a nonfiction writer. I do the same thing. It's think, 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 and then all of a sudden the floodgates open. Absolutely. It's, it's really, in my, I get asked a lot about process, and all writers have different <clears throat> processes. You know, I know John Grisham, and John writes the first page of the next book the day he finishes the last page of the previous book. You know, Scott Turow throws away about two-thirds again more than what he publishes. I end up using almost every single word and very, very rarely even go back and edit. <clears throat> now, my agent gets very upset when I say that. He's like, don't say that to anybody. You make my life very hard for beginning <laughs> writers. <you know? laughs> but, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> I think it's, everybody has a different process. And what I try to get across to beginners is process is really irrelevant, Dickie. People say, do you write longhand? Do you use words? Mm-hmm. Do you use this? You know, do you work at night? Work in the morning? None of that matters. How could it matter? Okay? All that matters is you have this thing in you. And you either have the intestinal fortitude and the talent to get it out, or you don't. I don't care if you write it with a baby on your hip, leaning over the washing machine, doing the laundry. You know, good books have been written that way. Yeah. It's just the, 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 the method just doesn't really matter. Right, right. I remember Anne Rule saying she used to write with, you know, on a typewriter in a kitchen with kids crawling all over her. Yeah. So. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. And... um Seth Godin is a he's quite a well-known digital marketer, and he said he refuses to answer questions about process because it doesn't matter. Just get out and do it. <laughs> there you go. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. yeah. So let's let's just give uh, listeners a synopsis of Cemetery Road. I mean, right from the get-go, that very first page, it's very short, but it really pulls you in. And yeah. there are a lot of themes running throughout the book. The secrets, murder, political malfeasance sexual misconduct, difficult relationships, a wealthy few ruling the region, and greed. So- sounds like real life today, right? <laughs> That's a pretty good summary right there. I like that. Most people struggle with it. You got it. That was good. Yeah, so it begins with um, Chinese investors are about to start construction on a billion-dollar paper mill when there's a murder. Um, tell us a little bit of, of the story in your own words. Yeah, it's... Honestly, I mislead people a little in the beginning. I think in the beginning with that murder, you tend to think you're in a conventional uh, mystery, you know, where an archaeologist is murdered who work threatens the arrival of this paper mill that, that offers salvation to a desperate town, you know. I think, I think a lot of Americans can relate to the opening because the small towns in America have been shrinking and dying for so long, and they're so desperate for salvation. Um, so you have that theme I would call an external theme. Then you have an issue that a lot of people can relate to, my generation, which is 
your parents have aged to the point where they can no longer take care of themselves. And a lot of people have to stop mid-career and go back to the small town which they were from. And that, that can be very tough and create all kind of disconnects in people and a lot of drama, you know, things unsaid, unresolved, old lovers, everything. But what this book is really about is the secret that's revealed at the end. I obviously can't talk about what that is, but right. you mentioned sexual misconduct, and I would say more sexual secrets than misconduct necessarily, but if this is book, at its heart, it's a book about two friends who always loved the same woman, and how maybe from the very beginning they were fated to come to this pretty, pretty stunning conclusion where they're all tied up in a very big mess, I guess is what I would say. Mm. Tell us a little bit about what kind of research you had to do for this, because your protagonist is uh, Marshall. He's a journalist who uh, became very successful in Washington, D.C. before going back uh, to take care of his father, his ailing father, and estranged father. I mean, a difficult relationship there. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, a lot of my books, you know, I say all writers write about themselves. You know, that's a tricky thing to say, but... But I, I, I'm honest with people and say, you know, you, you can't move people just making things up out of thin air. You know, all writers are processing things they've experienced in their lives or know about from their own lives, et cetera. And um, that's just, like I said, it's tricky to talk about that. But but as far as research, it's uh, I would say Marshall is a combination of Woodward and Bernstein, whom I admired a lot when I was growing up, and then more of a modern archetype like John Meacham character who I met Meacham uh, when I was doing a writers conference out in California. You know, in, in this business, you meet former journalists who are writers, and uh, you know. But the thing about writing what you know about is that you don't have to do as much research because you've lived it. You know, when I wrote those two World War II books in the beginning, those were just monumental research efforts that took a couple of years apiece and just a massive winnowing down of information that I absorbed. Now it's more a question of uh, deciding what things to use that I know about. And very much, work, like in the trilogy, I worked with a heroic reporter, Pulitzer finalist from Faraday, Louisiana, a guy who makes no money and has done some of the most heroic work in the history of America to solve civil rights cold cases. You know, mm. you, talk, you work with somebody like that, and it's just a gold mine of information that no one has, not even the FBI. I mean, the FBI comes to this guy. What I try to do is get in contact with the people who have their finger on the pulse of what the books are about. Right, right. I've heard you talk about rhythm and the rhythm of language, and um, it's obviously obvious from reading your book that you love language. I actually learned a new word in there. Don't ask me what it was because I can't remember off the top of my head. (laughs) (laughs) But I had to look it up. Um, So talk to us a little bit about the rhythm of language. Yeah, well, that's something maybe I got as a musician, although I think even prior to that, when you're young and you read poetry, if you have an ear, you pick it up. But the, the best test for that is, you know, to read aloud. And I don't normally do that, but if I come to a passage like the beginning that you mentioned or a character's death or something that I particularly want to get right, I find myself reading aloud with this uh, guy who discovered me years ago. And, that, and that's because all language, I mean, it you said it's self-evident it has its own rhythm it's just that not everybody seems to get that i've had struggles with editors before who don't have an ear for for the rhythm of language and they'll suggest some word change or this or that and i'll just be astonished 
that they don't seem to uh, hear the, the sort of dissonance of the sound, you know, of a word. Because if you get the rhythm of the language right, that is a huge element of your style as a writer. You know, I think there have been some very successful writers who had pretty clunky styles. And then you have writers who have been successful who reading them is just effortless. You just slide from page to page to page. And it's hard to talk about rhythm since you read in silence. We don't think about rhythm. But I think the eye and the mind still pick it up because we're so intimate with language from the time we're young. Yeah, I I'm 100% agree with that. Reading out loud. I write a lot of script, and I always tell everyone, read it out loud, don't read it in your head yeah, first time. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so um, what's next for you? Uh, lots, on, lots going on, I know. <laughs> a lot, yeah, I'm working on about three different things, and um, I've had some opportunities come up in TV as well. I'm reluctant to do those kind of things because I'm quite honest. You know, when you're, when you're the author of a novel, you're pretty much God of your own universe. And when mm. you start dealing with Hollywood, it's all about multiple voices and compromise, and that's, uh, well, that's a tough adaptation to make when you're uh, used to one way you know yeah and so tell us wh- how it, when you're when you're looking at a villain and the antagonist in a story you've said uh, I've heard you say that he's uh, the villain always thinks he, he he himself is the hero of his own story and a lot of writers miss that too yeah I don't know how they miss that but just think about every person you know Every person you know in their own mind <clears throat> is the protagonist of their story, right? You're right. just an extra, or you're a foil, or you're a whatever. And and for villains particularly, who I think tend to be grandiose oftentimes in their own mind, they, I mean, I don't want to name any names now in public life, but I mean, they see themselves striding across this canvas, you know, where everyone else is just an extra. And you just, you have to understand that when you portray them. I, I got asked by the New York Times Book Review couple of days ago of what my to name my favorite villain and favorite hero you know and i thought about it we all know the obvious ones you know but i thought about lord henry watton from uh, the picture of dorian gray oscar wilde he's such a wonderful dark character because he is so erudite brilliant and so verbal and some of the best quotes wilde ever best one-liners he ever came up with are in his mouth you know it's uh, flamboyant brilliant like satan almost you know just right. uh, the, the best parts always belong to the villain. Right, right, I agree. And so with each book, and since you write such different stories, you don't, you're not locked into one genre, how did writing Cemetery Road change you as a writer, as an author, as a thinker? You know, that's a good question, and I would have, being honest, I began by writing another book that was a little smaller. It was sort of a noir-type novel set in Oxford, Mississippi, I abandoned it because it was too big a transition after the trilogy. Cemetery Road, I'm not sure that it did change me. I think it was one more in the vein that people are probably most familiar with me because of. And I think probably with the next book, I'll be taking on something that will change me a lot. I mean, I'm just, look, I'm not that author who goes out going, oh, my newest book is the best thing I've ever done. You know, I'm proud of Cemetery Road. I think it, it definitely has things in it that not only I've never covered before, but there's the thing that's revealed in the end, you have to go back to the Bible to find what's revealed in the end of this book, okay? It's worth getting there. Right, right. But it's time, I think, I mean, having written 16, 17 books, uh, I'm ready to break ground even more, you know? And that, that's how you stay vital. I mean, it's the only, 
you asked about changing genres in the beginning. Look, if I did the same thing over and over, I'd shoot myself in the head. I'd feel obligated to, okay? Right. You've got to stretch yourself <laughs> all the time, and you hope that you succeed well enough to bring your audience with you. That's all we can do. I think that's an awesome note to end on here because I, I think that's true of life in general. That's right. Got to got to keep growing. I have to let listeners know if they go to your website, gregisles.com, um, there's a picture of your office here that and it <laughs> says you may be able to stay in Greg's office and it looks awesome. Tell us just 30 seconds about this awesome house. Yeah, it's called Edelweiss. It's built in 1883. It's on the 300-foot bluff over Natchez and it's actually a character in my trilogy. So <laughs> once I, I opened it up after I had my injury from my accident, and so many readers and fans have come and stay there. It's really been a fun thing for people to do. Well, Greg, thanks so much for being with us. Really appreciate it. Final quick thought you'd like to leave our listeners with. No, thanks, Vicky. Just glad to touch base with Seattle, if not be there physically. Hope to see you in person one day. Yes, yes. Have a great rest of the day. Thanks. You too. And please do stay with us. Uh, we're going to take a very quick break. You're listening to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. And when we come back, we're joined by a Seattle favorite, Glenn Eric Hamilton. His new book, Mercy River. I'm Paul George of the Indiana Pacers. When I was six, my days were spent playing basketball. When I was six, my dream was to make it to the NBA. When I was six, my mom had a stroke. So I want you to learn to spot a stroke fast. F-A-S-T. F, face drooping. A, arm weakness. S, speech difficulty. T, time to call 911. I'm Paul George. Spot a stroke fast. Visit strokeassociation.org. Brought to you by the American Stroke Association and the Ad Council. Looking for unconditional love, an exercise buddy, or a great listener? Pause has the dog or cat of your dreams just waiting to meet you. We've made thousands of perfect matches since 1967 because everyone needs a warm, safe place to call home. Find out more today at paws.org or call 425-787-2500. Are you ready for something real, raw, upfront, and honest? Then tune in each Wednesday at 2 p.m. right here for Love from the Hip. I am spiritual hypnotherapist, master esthetician, and the host, Sakura Sutter. This show is unlike anything you have ever heard and was created to help others to help themselves. Hear me follow up with guests I have hypnotized and see how it has improved their lives. I will also spotlight amazing people from around the world. Their skin tips, live readings, and answers to life's burning questions. Join us each Wednesday at 2 p.m. Let's see if I... I guess that... <sighs> this just isn't working. Knowing you have a great idea for a book is one thing. Writing it, another. So what's stopping you? Maybe you can't find time. Maybe you don't know where to begin. Maybe you wrote a couple of chapters, then disappeared down a rabbit hole. Or maybe you'd rather someone else write it for you. Partnering with the right coach or ghostwriter can make all the difference between talking about your book and finishing your book. As an award-winning writer and strategic consultant, Vicki St. Clair's storytelling credits span from business, health, self-help, and memoir to New York Times and USA Today best-selling anthologies. Vicki partners with people just like you at the exact level you need, whether you need a little encouragement, editorial guidance, or full-blown ghostwriting and consulting services. If you're serious about telling the story you know is inside you, stop procrastinating. Let's get your story down on paper. 
Contact Vicki today. Email Vicki at VickiStClair.com or call 1-800-495-7617. See more about Vicki and her work at VickiStClair.com. Conversations live with Vicki St. Clair. Listeners trust the show and advertisers love the audience. Learn more at conversationslive.net. Broaden your horizons. You'll be amazed at all the topics we cover on Alternative Talk 1150. And welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. And my next guest is Glenn Eric Hamilton. He's joining us, I think, for maybe the third time. He's a native of Seattle. He was raised aboard a sailboat, grew up around the marinas and commercial docks and islands of the beautiful Pacific Northwest. Uh, His debut novel, Past Crimes, won the Anthony McCavity and Strand Critics Award and was nominated for the Edgar, Barry and Nero Awards. And uh, he's joining us today on his first day back at work. So we really appreciate Glenn Eric Hamilton. We really appreciate you being here. Thanks very much, Vicki. I, I uh, greatly appreciate coming back. Good to talk to you again. And uh, so you, you just took some time off to go on book tour and uh, mix a little vacation in there. Uh, just t- give us a highlight of, of your book tour. Sure, absolutely. Um, I, I got to uh, have a, a co-hosted event with uh, the author Brad Parks, who's a, both a friend and an outstanding writer himself, at uh, Poison Pen in Arizona. And then my family and I, after I came back to Southern California, we drove up the coast, visited a number of bookstores, and kind of wrapped it up with uh, an event at the University Bookstore, which is connected to the University of Washington, which is my alma mater. So uh, very much like coming home there at the end of, the, uh, at the end of the, that leg of the tour. And then over the weekend, I was in Vancouver, B.C. for one of our most enjoyable annual conventions, which is called Left Coast Crime, where uh, mystery writers and readers get together, oh, probably, I would guess, five or six hundred of us mm-hmm. um, to, to celebrate throughout the weekend and, and just have a great time uh, discovering new writers and discovering new fans. Very good. And now back to reality. <laughs> and, now back, and now back to the day job and, and, the, and the blank page. Yes, exactly. Yeah. But thank goodness, you know, because uh, it's all wheels within wheels. I should say, uh, I should let listeners know your book is called Mercy River. Your new book is called Mercy River. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, Glenn, but I heard that this wasn't supposed to be a Van Shaw novel. This was supposed to be a whole different novel, and it got a little too big. And so... Exactly. Yes, my fourth fourth book um, started out as a standalone, and I was working on that for a time. And it it turned into a larger beast than I had a cage for at the time. I needed to rethink it a little bit. And at the same time, I got a notion for the next logical step in, in Van's journey and his, and his adventures. Um, I had a really strong notion for it. And so I, I went to the publisher and said, look, I can, I can continue to work on this standalone and, and, uh, and branch out from it a little bit. Or... I can go write the fourth in the Van series, uh, which I'm also excited about. And they they opted for for jumping back into the Van uh, the Van realm uh, first. I'm going to continue to research this standalone, which may turn into a series. I don't know about it yet, um, but we'll I'll have to discuss that with my with my editor and agent, who are uh, make sure that wiser heads prevail when I get a little off the off the track. There you go. I don't know if you heard Greg say uh, Greg Isles, who we just spoke with. 
he said the same thing about his new book that that was meant to be something else and it got too big and so it, <laughs> it, it led to Cemetery Road. So um, you're definitely not alone in this kind of thing. We never quite know where the work is going to lead. You know, it, 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 it's, it's always kind of a fascinating journey what the what both the conscious mind as you're writing and the subconscious mind pushing you to do what you end up with. Um, but as I, as I said, I, I got an idea for this van book that I was extremely excited about. And, and I said, look, I'm going to write this eventually. Do you want me to write it now or continue to work on the standalone? And, and we, opted for, we opted for book four, Mercy River. Yeah, excellent. I'm glad you did. I'm enjoying it. So I, I think, you know, Ideas are everywhere if we're paying attention, if we've got our eyes and our ears open. And like you said, this idea was at the back of your mind. But I think what really starts the development of a story is the questions we ask about those ideas. So share with us some of the questions that maybe led to this story, Mercy River. Well, one of the one of the questions I had was is uh, a lot of um, a lot of the van uh, Van's uh, stories to date have dealt with the impact that his very unusual childhood of being raised by a career criminal has had on him. And although he, we know that he went into the army and he had experiences there, serving in the the 75th Ranger Regiment and then coming home after 10 years. Um, and we've we've heard snippets of that. We haven't really seen him with like-minded. Um, men from that service, whether they're active rangers or whether they're former rangers. And I wanted to explore a little bit more that his experiences in becoming a ranger, some of his earlier experiences in the Army, um, how he adapted to that, and what he's like when he's around these um, these people with shared experiences and what they talk about in themselves. Uh, part of that came from learning about uh, a regular Army event every two years, they hold what's called the Ranger Rendezvous out at uh, Fort Benning in Georgia. And that's a, an Army-sponsored event where they, they celebrate, they have competitions, they have meet-and-greets and Hall of Fame inductions and things of that nature. And I had the notion of, well, what if we there was one of those on the West Coast, mm-hmm. and what if it was privately run and a little more unhinged than, uh, than an official Army-sponsored uh, event? And it sort of uh, went on from there. The idea of Van in this essentially small town that's taken over by celebrating uh, current and former members of the service uh, and of special operations in particular was just too fun of an idea to pass up. Mm. And so it begins uh, with a murder. He goes to help his friend, close friend. They've had connection through the Rangers. Um, I'm wondering how how you how much you had to immerse yourself into that ranger kind of life to really get a uh, a good connection between the bond that they they build amongst themselves. Quite quite a bit. I'm not a veteran myself um, of, of the armed forces, and so I you know when I first decided to make Van uh, go into the military, and then eventually decided that that should be in, into the rangers. I wanted to make sure that I was treating it accurately and with respect, um, as well as making sure that it fit his character. And so there's a lot of research that goes into that. Some of it's online, uh, some of it's uh, reading, um, but the the best of it comes from interviews, honestly, of, of talking with, uh, with uh, men who have served in special operations, particularly in the 75th Regiment, and understanding their mindset and understanding the terminology that they use. And then, of course, um, a couple of them are gracious enough to have me run pages past them to make uh, especially certain that the 
the Van's way of thinking is how it should be for particular situations, both tactical but also emotional as well. Right. So let's talk a little bit about um, Van's friend in this because uh, he's the one who's embroiled in this murder, Leo Pack, and um, he's had his own problems. He was arrested in Seattle for vagrancy. Um, He's had difficulties and challenges. Um, Tell us how you developed his character. Sure, sir. Uh, Leo uh, first—he made his first appearance in in the second book, Hard Cold Winter, and at that time, um, he was in a rough place. Um, he was having difficulty readjusting to civilian life. Um, he was uh, having trouble living indoors uh, with a certain uh, uh, amount of claustrophobia and hypervigilance and other uh, symptoms of post-trauma along the way. Um, there's a distinction I try to draw between post-traumatic symptoms, which are very, very common, and post-traumatic stress disorder, which is uh, generally more prevalent, and is, although it's the commonly used term, it's not as commonly understood along the way. And that was, again, another area I needed to treat with great respect and to talk to people about and make sure that I was using it accurately. Leo was, with help and therapy and, and Van's support and his family support, was able to um, to to stabilize um, his his emotions and his feelings um, between the events of Hard Cold Winter and what's now Mercy River, the fourth book. Um, that said, now he's embroiled in a different kind of pressure, and when pressure is applied, not only to Leo, but to Van, too, um, some of those symptoms threaten to come back, and Van has struggled with that himself through the courses of the book. Right. We need to take a quick break. Um, I don't want to interrupt you with my next question here, so <laughs> we're going to take a quick break. Uh, my guest is Glenn Eric Hamilton. His new book is Mercy River, and we're, we'll be right back. You're listening to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Next week on Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair, award-winning Seattle filmmaker, author, speaker, and activist John DeGraff. An icon in the documentary film industry, John DeGraff has written and produced more than 40 films and authored three books, including the highly acclaimed Affluenza. His latest film, Torn Between Two Worlds, explores a thriving California city striving to be a fully self-sustainable community. Tune in Mondays at noon Pacific time and Fridays at 6 a.m. Catch up on podcasts at conversationslive.net. This is Martha Norwalk. Every Sunday morning, beginning at 9 a.m., thanks in part to the Academy of Canine Behavior in Bothell, we cover the world of animals. This week, September 1st, it's Shelter Rescue Sanctuary and anything that helps our Animal Friends Sunday. We'll check in with Laura Cook from Seattle Dogs Homeless Program. We'll chat with Ananda Institute of Living Yoga. Plus, I'll introduce you to a brand new canine coalition in our area doing lots of great work for our animal friends. Martha Norwalk's Animal World, Sunday morning, 9 a.m. to noon, right here on Alternative Talk, a.m. 1150. Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Live well and live strong. Reach her great audience and advertise. Learn more at conversationslive.net. Get your daily dose of variety. Alternative Talk, 1150. And welcome back, everyone. Welcome back. Uh, you're listening to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. And I'm very pleased to have Glenn Eric Hamilton back with us, this time with his fourth book, Mercy River. It's another Van Shore uh, novel and uh, just as good as the others. So, um, Glenn, I wanted to ask you a question that I asked um, my first guest, um, and that's about rhythm and what the rhythm of language means to you 
um, how editing can upset that rhythm of language. Talk to us about that. Sure. Yeah, that's a that's a that's an interesting question and kind of a challenging one. It's it's sort of it, uh, it does have a rhythm. It certainly has a rhythm on the page. You know, you can you can look at a page and it will have a a lot of white space, a lot of dialogue, and things of that. And that is typically a very fast flowing rhythm, as opposed to these dense uh, paragraphs along the way. Um, and it and it makes a difference. You know, we tend to thriller readers and mystery readers in particular tend to usually be attracted to things that are faster in pace um, that have that. And uh, all all educated readers, no matter what they like to read, are very attuned to a, a dissonant note in the rhythm of what they're reading. Just as a just as a music listener will call out, "Wow, that didn't sound right," or "It didn't sound like what I expected," accordingly. And there's times that that can be useful. Actually, there's times when hitting a jarring note when the reader's not expecting it um, is exactly what you want, and you want to throw them off the rhythm. Not so much, hopefully, that they throw the book down or lose track <laughs> right, of the story, right. um, but just enough to, to like say, this is not going to be comfortable. So, you know, buckle up a little bit. Um, and that's a, you know, that's, that's a things you can do by not just throwing in twists and surprises, but having a, a, a character make a left turn, you know, mentally or having a, having a, a character display some unexpected depth perhaps to the, to the protagonist and correspondingly to the reader that they're talking about. You know, there are all sorts of tricks that we can use that will allow, that will, that will shake the reader up a little and make them not quite so comfortable with where the story, where they think the story's going, which is always a good thing in a thriller, as if, if someone's not completely sure that this is going to turn out well. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, in many ways, Mercy River is another character in the book. Um, and you delve into some deep subjects there. Um, drug addiction, opioid crisis, small communities banding together against outsiders, white supremacy. Um, tell us a little bit about how you develop that and why. I, I note at the end of your book, you, in the acknowledgments, you say, I reserve the right to change basically whatever I want to change. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's very true. It is fiction after all, right? <laughs> yes, yes, it is. I think the thing I probably changed most in creating Mercy River was um, simple geography. There are a lot of really beautiful parts of Central Oregon's and that High Plains Desert that's uh, not the thick forest that people imagine when they think of Oregon. There's certainly a lot of that in the lowlands, but up high, um, you know, at about uh, you know, three-quarters of a mile elevation, there's a lot less of that, and, and, and uh, there's amazing rock formations, there's volcanic activity. And so I changed, I, I took the liberty of pushing a lot of very cool things together to create the fictional Griffin County and, um, and Mercy River accordingly. Um, when you list out, you know, the factors like opioids and, and um, uh, white supremacy and sort of enclosed things, it sounds very dark. <laughs> and there are certainly dark elements along the way. There are, those are elements of the story. But those are very real things that that impact not just um, not just rural centers but urban centers as well. And I liked the idea of Mercy River being of two minds about something. You know, they're very proud of their town. They've they've been able to survive as many towns in that area have not. There are there are ghost towns like Antelope and Shalako and others that are and maybe have a few residents left, but there there's not many. Um, and uh, where Mercy River is is hanging on, 
but it's also made something of a Faustian deal with this gathering every year to allow them to come in to spend money accordingly. And there's a reason there's a reason they've made that deal, and it has to get to darker elements in the town's past that the rally, which is this ranger gathering, has helped them with. Um, but they've they've really traded one problem for another, and uh, and the town itself is having to make some tough decisions. Right, right. I think you're known. Uh, I think it's fair to say that you're known for great character development. And um, I want to ask you. I, I I usually ask if when talking with fiction writers, I try to ask them a couple of the same questions on the same show. And so one of the questions I talked uh, with Greg about was that uh, villains always think they're the hero of their own story, which is something a lot of writers miss. How do you approach that? Uh, yeah, I couldn't agree more. It's, it's even, even if a person knows what they're doing is wrong, legally, morally, etc., they have usually justified that to themselves in some fashion, right? They've, they, you know, rare, rarely is a person evil for the sake of evil. They're, they're, um, they're doing dark things in order to gain something, to gain power, to gain money, to gain, um, you know, influence, whatever that, whatever it is that they, they're, they're after along the way. And, and, um, that justification is a strong reckoning in, a lot of character development and a lot of, and especially in thinking about villains, you know, just having somebody twirling their mustache is just not that interesting. <laughs> you know, people do things for reasons and it's, uh, it's always interesting when you have a, have a villain and you, you set them up with a backstory and, and a motivation that makes you think maybe they're not so bad. Oh no, what they're doing is horrible. That's awful. Why am I thinking that? You know, so, you know, when you can doubt, when you can doubt yourself a little bit and, and see that side from their point of view, um, I think it's richer for it. Yeah. I, I know one of the times we talked, we talked about Van Shore and is Van Shore like you? And you said, well, if he is, he'd be a, you know, a bigger, better, bolder, braver kind of, kind of <laughs> exactly. me. What words to that effect loosely? I'm wondering if you've written a an antagonist that you relate to also on some level. Oh, that is an excellent question. I am I don't think that there's an antagonist that's specifically me. I think whether consciously or not, there are elements of antagonists that are uh, what might be called your shadow self, your darker side, right? Mm-hmm. It's that it's that that petty voice in the back back or that that violent urge you know for road rage or whatever you might have even just for an instant that you that gives some life to that particular villain right if you if you had no moral quandaries and you had the ability to do whatever you wanted you know absolute power corrupts absolutely right it's that that sort of that uh, opening that door I and mean, I do think there are aspects of our personalities that get put into our villain I haven't yet created a villain that I think is essentially comprised of parts of me in the same way that Van is. But I think you've just given me an idea, Vicky. Uh-huh. So I might have to think hard about that. So. <laughs> do, do you think you can create a villain that you really, really dislike? Or, I, I, you know, I, as a reader, we want to like some part of the, the villain. Usually, not always. Yes, usually not always. Yeah, there are. I have certainly written a couple of villains that are not at all likable um, in the in that fashion. I've written some that were uh, that were uh, on the surface friendly or humorous or charming, 
Um, and when that mask of sanity slips a little bit, you see what's really there. Um, but I've written one or two. Actually, there's one in Mercy River who's just flat out a frightening individual, right? Mm-hmm. He thinks he's perfectly justified. He's, he's you know, a, a hardcore white nationalist, and he believes that his way is the right way, and his followers believe that his way is the right way, and he's going to do what he's going to do. And he is a terrifying individual because of that zealotry, right? And that always always the most frightening, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. He's you know that 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 um, uncompromising hatred is is always going to be a terrifying thing. Mm. Well, Glenn Eric Hamilton, I thank you so much for being with us today. Um, we've got thirty seconds to leave a final thought with our listeners, and I know they can find you uh, more about you and your work at GlennEricHamilton.com. Absolutely. That's the best best place to get in touch. I love it when readers drop me a line or drop a review to let me know that they've, they've liked the book. Um, I like to stay in touch, and I'm usually around and about at conventions like Left Coast Crime and Thriller Fest. So uh, come on by and say hello. Thank you. Hey, we really appreciate you being with us, especially on your first day, uh, first day back at work. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you, Vicki. All right. And Glenn Eric Hamilton's new book is called Mercy River. You can, again, you can find him at glennerichamilton.com. And thanks to each of you for joining us today and spending this hour with us. Gosh, it flies by for me. Um, if you have questions or comments on today's show, you can find me at conversationslive.net. I'm also on Twitter at Vicki St. Clair. And that's it for this week. We'll see you next week. Until then, live well, live strong. Radio is very competitive. Shows soar in popularity and then flame out. Sometimes, however, a real connection is made with an audience, and success blooms year after year. For over a decade, Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair has built a loyal following thanks to inspiring and stimulating conversation. Longevity, loyalty, exclusivity. Smart advertisers seek it out. With Vicki's valuable audience, the search is over. Discover the affordable, effective ways to advertise your business. Log on to Conversations Live. That's conversationslive.net today.